Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey everybody, good morning. Thanks so much for joining us. This is Harriet Kamek with Down to Earth, the show in which we talk about the issues that matter. And today is Wednesday, I don't believe it, but it's Wednesday, February 19th. So we're 19 days into February, the second month of 2020, a new year and a new decade. So if you have not started working on what you plan to, this is the time to get moving and get cracking because time is waiting for no man. If you do the math, in just a few weeks, it will be the first week of March. And immediately after that will be the end of the first quarter of 2020. Can you believe it? Just a few weeks ago, we were talking about the new year, the new decade, and here we are, right, smack in the midst of it with coronavirus and all kinds of stuff, right? It makes the rest of us wonder what on earth is going on because is it just a regular flu virus? Uh, you know, when you look at the symptoms, it sounds similar to the flu. So is it just a regular flu virus, but with more deadly effects? I don't know. All I know is I don't want to get it. I'm sorry for my Asian brothers and sisters who are getting a lot of flack, but hey, <laughs> the rain falls on the just and the unjust, right? I want to say uh, this morning that uh, kind of, just floating around Twitter and, and before, prior to getting on air, and I came across a story about, about a young child, a six-year-old child who was removed and placed in a psychiatric ward at six years old without the consent of the mother. And I find that 
I found it unbelievable and quite disbelievable until I learned through my good friend Robin Osborne, who is an advocate for disabilities and for children with, with disabilities in the state of Kentucky. And I found out that this is something that laws actually exist that allows CPS workers to remove your children without your permission. I did not know this. So this morning we were, I had already scheduled the show to talk about uh, short stays in foster care. And as I was reading the material that my producer presented to me, I, I kept, it's one of those things I was reading at six o'clock in the morning and I am backing away from it. I'm like, no, they must have gotten this wrong. They're, and you know, I believe in data. I believe in the science. I believe that the numbers don't lie. And I just started backing away from it because I simply could not absorb. I guess there's a part of me that is really trying to not absorb the fact that we really don't have any control over our children and that these laws are passed without our consent, right? And I just want to know where on God's green earth does this, uh, does this happen? Uh, where, does this, uh, where is this allowed to happen? And how is this allowed to happen? Uh, so I really, I really am not sure that uh, that this could happen. I, I really don't know. It's the weirdest thing, and uh, I must say that it took me quite by surprise. Uh, it, it's interesting though because uh, we kind of. We're, we're just, uh, it, it, it's interesting because do these laws get passed while we are asleep? Are we asleep at the switch? Do we know? Or what do we do? Uh, are we engaged? As, maybe we're not as engaged as we should be. But in, in this scenario, uh, this six-year-old child who perhaps is challenged mentally and perhaps uh, in these scenarios, sometimes are not aware or do not follow commands in a time within a time frame and a timely manner. Then they are typical of discipline. So, from what I read, she's in a special needs class, and the the worker who is assigned to that special needs class determined that she did not follow. She was destroying school property, so she called the police. Yes, she called the police on a six-year-old child, and the police came and, arre- and took that six-year-old child into the back of a police cruiser and took her to a psychiatric ward and held her without permission for two days. Folks, I want you to know that this is real. This is happening in real time. This is down to earth. This is what we talk about. These are the issues that matter, and this matters because it could happen to you. It could happen to me. If you don't know that these laws exist, that there are issues, there are laws with broad-based applications that could impact you and your family, you need to know. This is one of them. So they took the child and held the child, and I am just as outraged. I cannot imagine my six-year-old child being away from me for two days, and I don't know where she is. And apparently, they don't have to tell you where she is by the time she tracked it down. This is an outrage. And when these happen, this is what we need to pay attention to. These are the issues that matter. 
Well, I have prepared a story on short stays in foster care, and here comes this story. For some time now, uh, I have been aware of what happens to children in foster care. I never thought about the children who are placed for short term, right? Short term meaning that they're not there for long term. You and I think that, you know, foster care is a long term situation. So children are waiting to be placed in a home or to be placed or to be adopted. There is a scenario where CPS and the police can show up at your home. What we are finding abroad based across the country is that this is happening in minority communities, especially Hispanic and Native American communities, and communities where people are poor. It is also happening a lot in communities where violence exists. So if there's violence in the home, children are like, if the police are called, the police are going to come, and if they determine that the children are in danger, they will advocate for the children to be removed. Here's the thing, though. There are two scenarios happening there. I don't believe that the police should be called for that. I believe that CPS are the ones to be notified, yeah? Because let's face it, the police are trained to fight crime. When they show up, what their instinct is to look for a crime that is being committed, right? That's what their training is telling them. They're trained to identify crime. So when they show up and they remove children or they recommend that, they're making a spur of the moment decision that has lasting impact. We know now studies have shown that children who emerge and are forcibly removed from their homes experience long-term trauma that lasts a lifetime. There are some children for whom it's the, 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 the impact is lessened, but for a great majority of children, they are experiencing a severe impact that lasts a lifetime. This is why when you see children being adopted into some families, some children who are adopted manage to not be affected or impacted as much by the trauma they experienced based on how they were removed. But there are some children for whom this is a problem, and it happens more than you think. Uh, forcible removal happens in what we call emergency situations. The police show up, and they look around, and sometimes the families are poor. Where poverty exists, they think that, well, they look in and they see empty cupboards, empty pantries, and there's cockroaches and, and so on, so the children are at risk. So they call CPS, get these kids out of here. Sometimes, because the police make these decisions, because they're called to identify this, sometimes what you find is that sometimes even with the short stays occur when it is 10 days and under. That's what the short stay is. So the police show up because something happens, whether mommy, daddy hits mommy, mommy hits daddy. Something happens, right? And when it happens, now what happens here is that the police show up. And when the police show up, this thing now is becoming an issue. So the police show up, they make a decision, remove the children from this, this home. The children are placed in an emergency in foster homes. They are severely traumatized, emergency short stay. Within, and this happens without a court order, by the way. So in most states, the police don't need a court order to remove children from birth families. We're making, I'm making the distinction with birth families because the issue surrounds who children are born to and being placed in foster homes. So we've got to make it clear that these are birth families. 
Now, it would be ideal if children remain with birth families, but let's face it. Let's just be clear and be realistic. A lot of times, children are better off not being with birth families, especially where violence exists and especially where drug abuse exists. So there's usually child neglect and abuse, right? Secondly, children are also uh, impacted if the parent is on, is, is, is on drugs or the parent is homeless. And so the parent has some sort of addiction and is not paying attention to the needs of the child. These things affect the delivery of care to the child. So it's not that people don't know they, they have access to social services, such as food stamps and uh, healthy kids so they can take their kids to school, take their kids to the doctor, is that they don't do these things. They don't take care. So the children are remote. So something happens, the cops show up. The parent is really not a bad parent. They're just not, they're neglectful. So they put the child in a short stay for 10 days, absolutely traumatizes them. Absolutely traumatizes them. And there are some cities, I posted a link, there are some cities that tend to have more uh, short stays than anybody else. And it's interesting because we have to ask ourselves, why are we doing this? Why are we why are we continuing to have children in, in foster care and in short stay facilities? Uh, I am some years ago, uh, I first uh, became aware of this some years ago. I was uh, I want I planned on being a foster care parent myself. So how it works in the state of Michigan and in the county I lived in, you had to go to some sort of orientation training. Not they do a complete, you know, background check on you, and and then you know, of course, they get to the stage where they come and interview your home and so on. And before we got to that stage, I had just gone there to to visit. I had just gone there to get more information, and I was shocked. One of the things that alarmed me was that when children are forcibly removed from uh, their homes, that they usually come with just a a plastic bag, that they're told to grab some stuff quickly, and that they come. And I'm like, but that would be traumatic. You know, I was facing myself at the time my oldest daughter was getting ready to go to college, and I was facing myself right smack in the midst of how would a child feel if they're notified, if they have to be removed forcibly from their homes. And one of the things that I learned is that sometimes children run away, like older children, 12 and 13, if they don't like foster care, they do run away to try to go back home. If home is a dangerous place and foster care is not an ideal setting, children do run away. I am just asking all of us, people, we need to take better care of our children. We sometimes need to place our children's needs above ours. I am alarmed sometimes at how we as parents are neglectful of what our children need. We don't spend, we don't prioritize our children. Their needs come first because they're what? They're vulnerable. And so as parents, we have issues. Some parents have issues with drug addiction. They have issues with violence. And they don't think about the children. I'm going to be honest with you, just, just being transparent here. When I was married, I was married for 13 years to an abusive man. He was physically and emotionally violent. And I used to beg him 
Luckily for us, we lived in an affluent neighborhood. Had we been poor at the time, I am pretty sure if the cops had shown up, they would have taken my daughter away. I used to beg him not to incite violence against me because I feared that if the police showed up, they would bring CPS, they would determine that the environment was too violent and would remove my child. There was nothing I could do to convince my then husband that he should consider her feelings and her emotional stability and her personal sense of safety above his. It took years to work towards making my daughter feel safe again. And I looked, I resented that because I resented that about him because to me, he did not prioritize. He did not prioritize my daughter's safety above his own need to be violent. And I know psychiatrists and so on are going to jump out of the thing and say he couldn't control his violent tendencies. Yeah, he could have. He could have. How many of us get cut off on the road? How many of us uh, people jump in front of you when you're trying to join the freeway? Are you pulling out a gun and blah, blah, blah and shooting people? How many of us are incited by, you know, by situations, but we don't respond violently? So, yeah, he could have curbed his violent tendencies. I'm just seeing in some of these cases, except in cases of poverty. In one story that I read, this is done, this was done by the Marshall Project, by the way. They do a tremendous job of identifying areas in our society that need improvement, right? They do identify issues. And so shout out to the Marshall Project, as usual, right? And they do publish their findings publicly so everyone can read it. And I will at the end of this broadcast, right? And one of the things that I have uh, seen that impacted me when I went to this uh, expose, the seminar on being a foster parent, was the emphasis that they placed on how safe the home must be. And at the time, one of their thinking was sometimes based on data that they had gathered, they determined that sometimes it's better for the children to stay in the home because the parents might need or they might not know that they can access services. For instance, if you have a parent in the home who perhaps has issues with drug addiction, they probably need counseling, right? So a social worker can help identify them and point them in the right direction. If there's no food in the home, maybe a social worker can help them, uh, you know, apply for food stamps or navigate those ways because the children are at risk. Or if they have trouble paying rent or electricity or keeping the heat on, keeping the water running through the home, there are ways and means to promote and to help the parents and support them. If when the police show up, this is like the last call, the police show up, when the cops show up, they're really... They're, they're coming in and they're looking around, oh, my God, this is an unsafe place for a child to be. Let's get the children out of here and take them out. When the children are so forcibly and violent removed, even though with good intention, even though with good intention is to rescue them, the issue is these children end up with lifelong trauma. And that, my friends, is where the rubber meets the road. That's my issue. What happens to these kids? Uh, a few years ago, I was on syndicated radio in Covington, Kentucky. So shout out to you folks in Kentucky and Cincinnati, Ohio, and as well as here in Detroit. So I was simulcasting. And somebody had an issue with foster care. I was talking about foster care because uh, a friend of mine introduced me to the idea that I wasn't talking about it. 
And I said, okay, well, let's talk. You know somebody who knows more about this? Send them to me. And the person uh, was running a home for children who were at that point. They were 17, about to be 18, and they were about to come out of foster care. But most of them end up homeless because the system kind of forgets them. Between that 17 and 18 gap, by the time they exit foster care at 18, they really don't have anywhere to go if they haven't been planned for. So she had a home. This woman and her husband set up a home for, for, for children. And when, she, when we sat down to talk prior to her coming on the show, we talked a little bit. When she brought the statistics home to me, she brought with her three young men who had been in the system from they were children. And she brought them to me to explain what it felt like. And one of them was very friendly. You know, very, you can tell he's the one who goes along to get along. And the other one just, he, he had nothing to do with anybody. He wasn't going to talk to anybody. He was like, where were you all when I was going through this? He Turns out he had had, that's how he was coping. He had had some violent experiences in foster care. It was one of those situations where he was withdrawn from his home ostensibly to save him because that would have been better, but he was violently raped in every foster care, in every place that he was placed. These are some of the things that happen to children. I can't look at you because if I look at you, I'm going to cry. I'm still remembering how that young man felt and his pain and how he resented me, but his resentment was not personal. I was just the the society that did not know of his pain and did not have a proper way to channel and treat his trauma. And there I was sitting there for 15 minutes to try to help someone who has a lifelong case of trauma. I totally got it. I totally got it. I was totally, totally impacted. So I began to do uh, more uh, research on how does this happen? Like, seriously, does this really happen? Do people really, children really get into short stays but end up being a lifelong situation? How does this happen? And I was shocked at myself and shocked to discover that these things do, in fact, happen more than I'm comfortable to know. And my friends, I can't begin to tell you that set me on a path because I started to wonder, well, what happens to folks? This is how the Exodus Foundation was born. These are the ideas that I recognized that I couldn't just talk about this. I had to do something about it. I had to go and find somewhere for people for women who had been violated sexually and physically and who now find themselves at the mercy of life and can't help themselves to help them find somewhere where they can shelter until they recalibrate because of the trauma. Had I not been exposed to trauma, I would never have known. So when I look at the stories like short stays in foster homes and I look at the story of the six-year-old child, who was placed in a psychiatric ward for two days without her mother's knowledge and permission, I am looking at the lifelong trauma that is set in place for that child. 
I am looking at how that will impact her as she matures and as she grows into an adult, if she makes it that far. Because I'm intimately familiar with trauma. Had I not gone to therapy, I could not sit here today to talk about these issues. But it took therapy and Christian counsel and, and, and uh, spiritual guidance for me to be able to work through my emotional issues based on the trauma that I had been through. Trauma is real. And we think that, you know, people have the saying that children are resilient and children will get over stuff. It's, it's embedded in their memory and it affects the way they live and make decisions later on. Broken children become broken adults. When we look at how these broad-based laws are applied and we send the full force of the law to go and remove a child because we think the child is in danger because the parents are neglectful, we're setting children up for failure. It perhaps is best that the police are on the sideline in case violence erupts, but that should be performed by people who are trained to talk to children. Children should not be forcibly removed, especially six-year-old children, should not be forcibly removed from a home and placed in the back of a squad car, listening to police uh, talk. In this scenario where this young six-year-old girl was removed, the police officers sounded like they were doing their job, but it was painful because they know from experience what this is going to mean for that child. She does not stand a chance. She does not stand a chance. And this is outrageous, right? This video that we saw is outrageous, but this just highlights what is going on in child care across the country. We have an epidemic here. There are parents who are unable to take care of their children, and they're not bold enough to come forward and say, I can't take care of my kids. I need help. They're drugged out. They're abusive. They abuse their children and leave children with lifelong trauma that they have to navigate and figure out. They didn't ask us to be here, right? We went and had sex and brought them here. Let's just be real. And then we bring them here, and then we abandon them because we don't pay attention to what they need. People say that being a single parent is is overwhelming. I can write the book about it. It is. It was overwhelming when I was raising children by myself. Yes, it was. But I took like most of us, I said, it's not about me, it's about them. What do they need? What will it take to get them from point A to point B? It was not about me. Most, some parents don't do that. The percentage of parents who don't do that is apparently high because I have a number here. It says every year, 17,000 children are removed forcibly from their homes and placed in foster care. 17,000, that's too high. It could be 7,000. It could be 1,000. It doesn't have to be 17,000. What we're also finding is that these are in marginalized communities, typically, where minorities and poverty and disabilities exist. I do admit that there are some children who, based on their disability, uh, they're in homes that the family are not able to cope anymore. Those are extenuating situations. There are children who are in homes where home is a bad place. We all know about that. That's why children run away from home. Home is a bad place. Home is unsafe. Home is somewhere where they can't do homework. 
Home is somewhere where they're not cared for. They don't have showers. They're not fed. There's no oversight. Mom or dad, whoever is the abuser, comes in and they're drinking, they're drunk, they have drugs all over the place, and the children are just parceled out to whatever pimp or whatever is going on. That's when home is a bad place. Those children should be identified and quickly removed from those situations. But in, the, in some scenarios where the, the police are not even sure, like in one case where, and this happens a lot, there is domestic violence in the home. They come to, to the police come. They determine who is the aggressor, but they still remove the minor child from the home even when they, they, are, they have arrested the aggressor. They'll still take the child away from the other parent who is sometimes beaten up and who is the victim. It's usually in cases like that where poverty exists because if you're screaming, I want my lawyer, they're going to back the hell off. <laughs> right? And I, I, I thought about it and I said, well, that didn't happen in my scenario probably because people were talking about wanting lawyers and stuff. Right, so they kind of, or depending on the neighborhood that they show up in, then they determine that this is not something to happen. But this is something we need to pay attention to, because it may not happen to you, it may not happen in your neighborhood, but you probably have a family member or a friend or so whom this has happened to, or you've heard of, or we see it on the news. But there is, it's, it's an underbelly of our society that most of us don't want to talk about because it's painful, it's embarrassing. And it looks like, frankly, it's not my problem. And those people need to go look at this a different way. But what about in homes where the children are disabled? They're born with a disability. It's not their fault either. It's not their fault either. I was with uh, 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 my hairstylist yesterday. She, she does a great job, doesn't she? Right? Well, she has children in our home. They are her children. She and her husband. Right? And I said to her, every one of your children are normal, they're healthy, and they provide a stable home for their children. I said, this is a blessing. Let's give thanks. She couldn't understand where I was coming from, but I was thinking about this, about children in foster care, how easy it is for children to slip through the cracks, the, the, the cracks, how easy it is for children to be ignored. Ladies and gentlemen, let's pay some attention. This is why birth, advocating for birth control is, is, is a thing. I don't, I don't believe in abstinence because I'm like, what if you get raped? <laughs> right? What if you abstain and abstain at the one time, the one time? So I believe in birth control because I believe birth control prevents pregnancies and children from happening where people are not ready to take care of them where people are not ready to deal with the ramifications and consequences. As far as I'm concerned, all pregnancies are risky. You don't know what can happen. Praise God that we all came, some of us came out normal. Praise God that we came out without any kind of disabilities. But what about where disabilities occur? What about parents, who are people who are having sex, but they're drug addicts? They're likely to have a child, right? And they are likely, what about alcohol? Alcoholics, they have sex, and they have children, and they abuse their children. Because if you're not paying attention, that is abuse, right? The children are not going to school. In some cases, the children become the parent of the younger sibling. The children have to go, you know, all kinds of crazy scenarios. We have an epidemic. Where are we? We've lost it somewhere. 
And it doesn't help that we are asleep at the switch because the laws now are such that give the power not to the parent. We don't have any power. The minute that the, the, the system is aware or made aware that there is an issue in your home, you don't have any power anymore. Like we saw in this case, if they determine that the child is a danger to himself or herself or to anyone else, they can take your kid away and lock them up in a, in a psych ward and hold them for 48 hours to 72 hours, and there's nothing you can do about it. Seriously? I don't know about that. There is a lot I can do about it. You will be hearing from my lawyer, and you will release my child, because I didn't give you consent. But what they're saying is that if they determine, well, you determine wrong. A six-year-old child, in this scenario, the, 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 uh, the uh, worker says the child was destroying school property. And I'm rolling my eyes at this. Was she pointing a gun? Did she use a sharp object to say she was going to kill or hurt people? I've seen scenarios where children throw tantrums and they're not removed from school. They're patted on the head and a message is sent home to the parent. But where poverty exists or where people are minorities, this is what happens. This is why the jails are always overcrowded with minorities and poor people because they don't have a voice. They don't have anyone to advocate for them. And the parents sometimes are too intimidated because sometimes they have a criminal history. So they're afraid when the police show up, they don't speak up, and then the children pay the price. I'm just letting that sink in to show what happens, because the police sometimes may be called to an affluent home and in an affluent neighborhood, but nothing happens. You don't see the children walking up. Remember the Menendez brothers? Saw how long it took for them to realize it was they who killed their parents? At first, when the police showed up, they didn't, it's the affluent neighborhood, they just thought it was a robbery gone bad. But if that had happened in a poor neighborhood, I guarantee you those children would have been cuffed. Right? We as parents, parents need to pay more attention. If you find yourself pregnant, you need to give up the drug, give up the needle, give up the drug, give up the liquor, and give it up. Spend some time taking care of your children. And for those of us, or if you have a child with disabilities, you need to pay special attention. Because if your child is going through to a special needs school, you need to pay attention because they can, and they will recently, uh, 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 I heard a story of a father. The parents are divorced, right? So they're sharing custody. And it's just now they're becoming aware that their son is autistic. So the mother lives in a different school district from the dad, Okay. So the mother decides that based on the child's disability, she's placed the child in a facility in, in her school district that, that is dedicated to special needs children. The father says whenever he, he went to a meeting, a parent-teacher meeting, and the caseworker told him that his son acts out. So he said, well, the behaviors you are describing he doesn't display that when he's around me, so I'm finding it incredible to believe. The mother, apparently, is sitting there. Maybe she's intimidated. She's not saying anything. So he got, he said, why aren't you speaking up and saying anything? You know what happened? The worker determined that that was a poor home and was ready to write, to file a, a the worker actually wrote 
a recommendation, and it ended up as part of their child custody arrangement that gave the father less supervisory hours with the child. He was out of his breath. He's like, but my son needs me. He said, because they're not treating him with any human dignity. They're treating him as if he's a project, a special needs project, and that is what it is. Sometimes what it comes down to is how the system sees these children, how the workers see the children. They don't see them as individual human beings who have specialized needs, but they see them as a project. It's just a job. I went to school and got a degree in this. It's just a job. So, heck, she's destroying school property because she threw a crayon across the room. So that's school property. Take her out of here. Put her in a psych ward at six years old. She's not going to learn anything good at six years old about that. It would have been better if you said, do not do that because this is why. I repeat it over and over. I know that it, 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 it is hard. It is. Raising children, whether they have disabilities or not, is hard. Don't we have to repeat the same lessons? Sometimes you wonder if they're even getting it because they seem to, up, you know, ignore whatever you're saying. I hope my daughter doesn't hear this podcast. I, I know I'm going to get text messages, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. You know those text messages. Mm, yeah, that's all you think, Mom? Right? But do you see what I'm saying? This This is kind of... We, we have to look at this. I'm trying to look at this from all points instead of just having one viewpoint. Because like I said on Twitter about the six-year-old girl, I want to know who the worker is because I think she did not employ enough compassion to understand that even if the child threw a crayon across the room, placing her in a psych ward for two days was not going to do her any good. That's a lifetime of trauma. And that's what I want that worker to be held accountable for. She needs to be held accountable for that. The child was placed in a set, regardless of what the, if the law of the state says that the child can be removed, then the parent needs to be notified. The thing is, the parent was not notified. Let the parent say, okay, release him to my care. Come back into in 48 hours and see if the child is still acting up. The parent was not notified. For 48 hours, the parent did not know where her child was. Because this worker was sitting there having a bad day. Girl, please, if you don't like it, get out of the field. If that's not your thing to do, just leave it alone. But you can't subject children to unwanted trauma that they have to live with for years and years to come. It does not go away. Trauma is real. And I'm sick and tired of people saying that all you folks are talking about trauma. Trauma is real. There are unintended consequences of actions, that there are things that happened in people's childhood that has ramifications and that dictates the way they perform as adults. We can't obviate that. You ignoring it does not mean it didn't happen. Most adults who you see act out and who are crazy go back to their childhood and you can see a pattern emerge of why they are the way they are. Don't you watch shows? Don't you see enough of this drama? Have you watched Dr. Phil lately? Like, anything you learn from Dr. Phil in the last several years, or Judge Judy, don't you see a lot of this stuff that people are acting out as adults come from a lifetime of trauma, of childhood trauma that went undetected, that children were unknowingly subjected to or knowingly based on prejudices and biases. Once upon a time, people were severely prejudiced against parents who were single and raising children by themselves. Now that that has become Across the board, now the, the biases exist on poverty and minorities. 
and some minorities are more predisposed to it. This bias and prejudice has risen up. It's gone to exponential levels in the society. And when you see people talking about it, they're not talking about it because they're having a bad hair day. People like me, I have better things to do. I'm a writer. I have a shelter for human trafficking victims. Believe me, I have better things to do that I could do with my time. I have two daughters whom I'm taking, whom I'm raising. But when I tell you that these things happen, these things happen and attention needs to be given to them because they apparently, they do give trauma. And it's hidden. And the thing with trauma is that because my trauma isn't real, because you don't see a visible scar, does not negate the fact that it didn't happen. These children are walking around with trauma that nobody is dealing with, and it could have been prevented. That worker who may have sent that child to a psych ward for two days, she needs to be held accountable for the lifetime of trauma that that child is going to have to deal with. That was not just unfair. She needs to be held accountable. I think the parents should go after her with a civil suit, don't you think? That child is never going to forget being led out of school and being placed in the back of a cop car and then taken to a psych ward and being without her mother for two whole days. Two whole days. Y'all not saying anything to me. You're leaving me out here like leaving me dangling, making me feel like, it, it ain't happening. Do you see what I'm saying? This stuff is real. And we have made fun of people's trauma by acting like because you can't see a visible scar doesn't mean that it doesn't happen. Excuse me for blowing your bubble. A lot of people who are violent, when you check their background, they experienced, they were exposed to violence as children. I know this firsthand. When my ex-husband was beating me up, he was my first case study. I began to think after a while that while he was beating me up, I wasn't engaged with him. So I wasn't beating him back up or hitting at him. So I began to wonder, what was the difference? And then I started asking him questions. Then I learned that he had been exposed to violence in his childhood. I said, no wonder you beat me up. Children who have been exposed to violence will act out violence. Trauma is real. I'm not saying the cops are wrong. It looks like, to be honest with you, we call 911 for every, I mean, the, 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 the car breaks down, we call 911. <laughs> You're driving down the street, you call 911. I think the 911 dispatchers are overwhelmed. But we, it, we have centralized 911 into a call for help. But what should happen is if somebody calls 911 and says the children in this home are being impacted by violence, well, the police are going to show up because they, it's a crime likely to happen or has happened. They don't know until they show up. But it shouldn't be the final decision of the police to remove children without a court order. And, and, and sometimes we recognize that children are at risk with birth families because let's face it, some people do beat their children up. They do burn their children. They lock them up in closets. They rob their children of food, but make sure the boyfriend has food. Come on, come on right? 
They will make sure they have their drug fix, but the child is hungry. They'll make sure they have their alcohol, but the child is hungry. They won't pay the lights or the water, but they will make sure that they have wet wipes to wipe themselves up after. Come on, the people are people do what is convenient for that. So when the police show up, there should be an attendant with them who says, well, let's look at this situation. If they need immediate help, why don't we take you guys down to a shelter where you can get food or heat or air for a few days until a social worker helps you and your services kick in. Removing children violently from their homes always, always has consequences. Always. And the consequences are not repairable. Sometimes they don't manifest until later. But here's another thing to consider. By the time the police show up in the home to provide some sort of remedy, guess what? The child has already been living with the condition and has, is already damaged. So whilst I see where short stays in foster care are, come with hidden trauma, from my experience, the damage has already been done by the treatment that those children have been receiving. People are people are people, and people do stuff that make our hair curl. I want to think that maybe the worker who sent the six-year-old into the psych ward, I want to think that maybe she was having a bad hair day, and maybe she didn't have her coffee that morning. Gosh, maybe the Starbucks barista didn't make her caramel macchiato with double espresso shot the way she wanted it to. I want to believe that that's the case because she has condemned that child to a lifetime of emotional trauma that to unravel from is going to take years and years of therapy. That is why I listen to child advocates. That is why I listen to advocates who advocate on behalf of children with disabilities. What is the likely scenario that would best negate it? What I am finding is that when lawmakers sit down to craft laws, they kind of react rather than become proactive. They don't listen to everyone across the board to determine what is the best way out. Here in Detroit, we have a problem with human trafficking. Let me just give you an example. The police in an, in, in, in a, uh, and the government, the DOJ, the, the justice people, everybody, right, all the stakeholders, right, in an effort to provide services to victims of trafficking, they have now determined that it's not enough when they pick someone up off the street to dump them somewhere. They have determined that in order for the police, for law enforcement, to do their jobs effectively, they need what? Everybody. They invite everybody. They want to hear from people who have been through it. They want to hear from providers of care, caregivers, care providers, what happens to people who find themselves in these situations. That is the same thing. That's the same approach we need to take to children with foster care. We need to listen to the advocates. We need to listen to social workers who have been picking up and rescuing children for years. We need to listen to what they say. We need to listen to the Marshall Project, who have identified uh, agencies, nonprofits across the country who are providing services to children in foster care. We need to listen to what they say. They have the data. They have spoken to survivors. Survivor stories are important. 
survivor stories are a guide. Anybody who has been through anything, that's a guide. They can tell you what's best and what is not best. We have, this is fast becoming a problem. Eventually, they're just going to pick up kids and just drop them off in a, in a place with a fence and just leave them there and don't go back and visit them for a while. Just leave them. Then one day they walk out of there because they're 18 and they walk out and these are broken children who re-enter the society with not a clue how to deal with anything. And here we are. Hello. Here we are. You know, they say the, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. I think these laws were sometimes created with good intentions, but the unintended consequences is that that hidden trauma that nobody could possibly foresee except for the people who are experienced and know what is likely to occur. I feel that we need to start engagement more and we need to become aware. So you need to check the laws in your state. If you have a child with special needs, you need to check the laws in your state. You need to know what you're up against. What does the law say? And for the love of God, we need to start employing conflict resolution and negate violence. If you are talking to some guy or you're married to someone who is violent, for the love of God, you need to evaluate it. Whether you need to be there or not, especially if children are involved. And if you have a child whom you identify as requiring attention and special needs, you need to come forward. You need to do some investigative work yourself to make sure that you're, even if your child is placed in a facility, what are these people like? And if you are someone who has been in foster care, I hope you have been to therapy. And I say this with all the love that I could possibly muster, that I encourage you to go to therapy. If you've been exposed to any form of trauma, whether it was a job loss, whether it was a spouse leaving you or a bad breakup that happened in college or you had to drop out of school or something you witnessed, we have been exposed to trauma, please go talk to someone. Nowadays, you can even talk to, you can Skype in to a therapist. Like my friend, Dr. Rhonda Maddox is a teledoctor. She practices telemedicine. You contact her. She's in Arkansas, Little Rock, Arkansas. You contact her, and then she's able to talk to you. She can Skype into you, listen to what you have to say, and so on, right? There are doctors who, on Instagram, they come across my page all the time, who are therapists. You don't have to wait. You can talk to them. We all need therapy, especially after this. So for you, my viewers and my friends, after this conversation, I know we're all going to need therapy. So might I humbly suggest, that we all go and have some comfort food. Hug a baby, give someone a hug, or ask for a hug. Eat something with chocolate, right? Go for a drive. I don't know about a caffeinated drink, but I do find drinks, anything that uplifts you, because this is a heavy topic to have talked about. I myself engage in self-care on a regular basis because I recognize that life is filled with stuff. And I pray for children who have to be removed forcibly from home. I pray for the parents and I pray for the first responders. 
It is equally as traumatic on first responders. After a while, they become numb. That numbness is a shield to protect them from it. So when they go home, they can live their own lives in a normal way. I'll tell you this and I close. Some years ago, I uh, interacted with a gentleman who is a police officer. We met at a conference for first responders. And I was intrigued by his story of how he had to leave it behind because it was affecting him. So after the conference was over, I asked him to come on my radio show to talk about his experiences. And when he sat across from me as we had coffee to tell me, I found myself in tears because he said he felt so helpless after 11 years in the sex crimes unit and that what he had seen happen to children, couldn't deal with it anymore. He became a beat cop. He was a detective. He became a beat cop. Said Harry, I couldn't handle it. It affected his life. It, it made, his wife told him that he became paranoid. People, our first responders are people too. The cops who show up, I don't think they take joy in what they do. I don't think they are all gung-ho and ready for this. No. They have children too, they are people, and they hurt. So are the EMTs, the nurses, and the social workers. I say we need to be a little bit more kind, and we need to be human. Empathy is a big deal, isn't it? Putting ourselves in one shoe, in somebody else's shoe, and walk around in it for a little bit just to see how it feels. So after this, come, take a deep breath, exhale, come, let's do this. We're going to inhale and then exhale, ready? Inhale, exhale, see how that feels better? And after this, go eat some chocolate, go call someone you love, tell them you love them. If your children are in school, text them. If your children are in college, text them. They probably are going to hit you up for some cash later on. Just expect that. So just get ready for that, right? If your children are grown, still tell them how much you love them. If your parents are alive, text them and tell them, thank you for raising me. I know I was a handful, but thank you for being there for me. If you were raised by whoever raised you, your aunt, your uncle, your foster parents, whoever, some kind neighbor, whoever did it, text them and tell them, thank you for raising me. And of course, tell yourself, thank you. I love you, and with all the love I have in my heart, I pray for all of us as we try to raise children, and I pray for all the children, the 17,000 children, who are in foster care every year. I pray healing, and I send love and positive energy to you for the rest of the day. I know right now I'm going to go have a chocolate drink, (laughs) right? Love you all. Make sure that you continue to listen to our podcast, Down to Earth, on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio. Thank you so much, everybody. Be blessed. Hi.
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.